0: Lord, in your mercy, Lord, in your power, Lord, in your love, meet with us this morning. Continue to be with us. Pray that we would see your lovely face. We would be gripped by your embrace this morning. Turn our inattention, our coldness, our we already know all of thisness away. Instead, use me, broken, fallible as I am, to nonetheless be your herald this morning. us all respond to you, to your mission, to your call, to your intentions for us as you proclaim them, and as you even embody them in our midst. I pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Blood and soil. Blood and soil. This is a Nazi slogan indicating a fundamental and even mystical connection between a particular land and a particular people. And maybe you remember that last summer it was chanted in Virginia to express a belief that white people in particular have an ultimate claim to American land because of their superior culture. We will not be replaced. We will not be replaced by the Jews. This was also chanted by those same people. An expression of fear on their part. That their previously privileged place, secured by special and preferential treatment by law, by the church sometimes, and by arrangement of the United States social order for the last 400 years, was a fear that that was slipping away to a broader and more equitable arrangement and it expressed a particularly heinous fear and indictment of Jewish people. We all know the events that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, where white supremacists marched openly, claiming that their blood is pure, that America is theirs first, and that they just don't want those who are different having a seat at the table. If you're like me, Maybe you thought that those views, exotic, strange, abhorrent, were kind of rare, just like a lightning strike. Yes, it does damage, but it's so occasional and remote, it doesn't happen that much. But what we saw in Charlottesville is that it's not like these views are not a lightning strike. Charlottesville was like an eruption of subterranean lava that was flowing underneath the surface a lava flow of hate and satanic evil. So I want to speak to you this morning as a Christian minister, speaking as one who is called under the authority of Scripture and the authority of Jesus Christ. That there's good news this morning. A word of hope, a word of challenge, an action, a word of response for us gathered in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. For those of us who, let's be honest, live in a state, and I don't mean some emotional state, I mean the state of Oregon, that has historically no less trouble than anything that happens in Virginia. So just a couple things that I think I want to highlight this morning from Scripture. The first one is this. White supremacy. The belief that white-skinned people And culture from European countries is somehow superior or privileged over any other by God or because of some accomplishment that belief is heretical to believe this and act on this whether privately or publicly is against scripture and against the good news of Jesus Christ this is actually the official position of the Presbyterian Church in America two years ago at GA this is exactly what we said And to believe this, to believe in white supremacy and live, it puts one in danger of hell. Any view of blood and soil is untenable for the Christian. Why? Is it because I'm just some mushy liberal who lives in Portland? No. How do we know? Because this is what scripture teaches. Listen to what John one says. Chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to who? Everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but God. John 1 is amazing because of the universality. Of this passage. The verse, the very first verse starts out in the beginning was the word. Why? Because it wants to associate what he's saying here about Jesus with Genesis 1, the creation of everything. And when Jesus comes, he comes for the world, the cosmos, a world of sinners. He is the light. The one who created everything comes to be offered to everyone. And what does John go on to say? Who is it that it is privileged to know him and to receive his life? Look at verse 12 and you have your scriptures open. It's not those of blood, so it doesn't matter your ethnicity, your race, your heritage. It's not those of the will of man, verse 13. It doesn't matter your cultural or moral achievements. They don't commit you to God, so it doesn't matter if your culture demitted, uh, created democracy or Donkey Kong. Those things are not what commend you to God. Rather... It is the gracious will of God and faith alone that gives you Christ. Let me say this just by the way. To critique white supremacy, is not a, especially by a white person, is not some form of self-hatred or inducing us some shame about being white. But it is saying that baptism and faith and the Holy Spirit are more important in shaping our self-understanding of who we are. Baptism overcomes, the Holy Spirit overcomes, Jesus overcomes what might be perceived as a certain kind of fragility in looking at these issues. But it's not just John 1 that talks about these things. If you have your Bibles, look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 5. You read that after Christ had ascended to heaven at the Feast of Pentecost, He poured out His Holy Spirit. The passage says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from where? Every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed, saying to one another, what does it mean? Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, and going on to verse 16, this is what was uttered the prophet Joel. In other words, this is what seems crazy, people speaking to one another's languages, everyone coming together from every nation under heaven. This is God's plan. This was an accident of history. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, Without distinction. Culturally. ethnically, Racially. When Christ's kingdom came. And by the way, kingdom is a political term. Kingdom is just the extent of the reign of the king. All right. When Christ's kingdom came, it came as a kingdom that was not localized to one region, to one land, to one people, one culture. God's spirit is poured out on all flesh. God's people includes those from every nation under heaven. In God's word of reality in Christ. There is no preferred people or place. Jesus is the preferred one. Who is it that makes up the people of God. Jew and barbarian, Cambodian and Canadian, Spanish and Finnish, Ethiopian and Australian, and everything in between on that game. How's the song go? Red, yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. His spirit is mobile. It sweeps up all kinds of people into the fold of his kingdom. In fact, what should stand out is that the creation of the church is an undoing of the curse of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. There the people are separated and scattered because of their rebellion towards God. But now with the coming of Christ, a new people is called, a people from all over, a people called the church, the gathered ones, made up of all nations and cultures, and it's formed for God's glory. So what Acts 2 is saying is that to commit any kind of ethnic, cultural, or racial supremacy is to choose Babel cursing, not Christ blessing. And at least as the people of God, our first priority is always to choose to love and to serve Christ and His people. All right, so there's the first point. But here's the second one. How do we go about and serve Christ in this context? How do we be the church in our current moment? Well, first... Foremost, is this as Christians, we cannot hate the haters. We cannot. You see, now is when we are called to be Christians and love those whose views are evil and corrosive to Christianity, even as many of these beliefs are often cloaked in the language, if not the substance, of Christian faith and conviction. And I want to be honest with you, I'm not worried about fake news. On NPR or Fox or anything like that. I'm worried about fake good news in the pulpits. Especially evangelical PCA pulpits in the country. I think it would be easy for us to hate those who commit acts of violence or terrorism. And Charlottesville was domestic terrorism. And some of these were my thoughts. They were ungodly. But as those events happened and the subsequent events have happened, I think I, I thought, God, why not? I'm not saying this is good. I'm just admitting because we're in church, where we're all vulnerable, and admit we need Jesus. God, why not let the police treat those racists like they usually treat black people who legally there? Yet, yeah. Do you remember going back to another incident just a few months before? Do you remember the response of the Christians in Charleston? After a white supremacist came to their church and sat in on and listened as they prayed and expounded on scripture, they went to a Bible study. And then he stood up and killed most of those in attendance. Do you remember what happened? How they cursed him, how they burned him in effigy, how they blamed him for being white? No, none of that happened. What happened? When he had his court arraignment date, some of the very survivors who had seen their friends and family massacred showed up to his hearing just a few days later. And what did they do? They publicly forgave him. I forgive you. I forgive you. They did not allow themselves to become like him, sharing his hate, with his redirected back him. But instead, what did they do? This is only a work of the Holy Spirit. They opened the door for the possibility of God's love to take what was meant and even accomplished evil and turn it somehow for some measure of good. You see, we cannot presume we are better, smarter, or more moral than those whose sin and theology we oppose. John says in his first letter to us this, in 1 John chapter 2, whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother. Still in darkness, whoever loves his brother abides in light. In him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Where is your eye? Does it see light? Does it receive the light of Jesus? Or is it dark and you're stumbling? He's calling us to light. Why else can't we hate very natural response, a very tribal response, at least for us who name Christ. This is why, because we are now united to Jesus by faith and his life is our life, not just as some kind of example, though it is surely that, but somehow mystically, mysteriously by the power of the spirit we share in his real life. And how did Jesus respond to us when we hated him? Listen, Romans chapter 5 says this while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Who's the ungodly? That's all of us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. Of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Just as a quick aside, this is talking about justification by faith. Does justification by faith, is it just this private thing? Is it simply just about our relationship to God? It's primarily that, but it is extensive in its effect and how it shapes how we live in the world. We've been saved by grace, and so we operate by grace. We see first that the chief sinner is who? It is us. Jesus has made us and hated him his friends. Before we were friendly, before we were worthy of any kind of affection. And he gave his pure, holy blood to wash away our sin and make us his family, to give us what? Ephesians says the whole world. So that now we can love. We have to love. Because we have first been loved by God through the cross and the resurrection. Well, that's the second thing. And here's the last thing. And this is where, what does it mean to be justified has implications. What does the kingdom look like? Is this embodied by us, the church? This is specifically for white Christians. White Christians cannot ever again turn from loving those who fall into the crosshairs of this satanic belief and practice. What about the Jews that were mentioned in that rally? What's the response of Christians to Jewish people? Do we scorn them? Do we treat them with suspicion? Here's a good word, maybe the only word that we would say, just given the history of how Christians have treated Jews. What do we say to our Jewish friends? Thank you. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the prophets, for the Psalms, for the tradition, for the history. Thank you for Jesus. That thoroughly Jewish, circumcised, Hanukkah-celebrating Hebrew, who we also worship, is God. Scripture says that salvation is from who? It says in John chapter 4, salvation is of the Jews. And so maybe some of us would be privileged to read scripture with our Jewish friends and we can learn from them. And maybe we can talk about the Messiah and give an account for the hope that is in us, for the hope that we believe God is extending to them. But we do this in humility and patience and in a position of gratitude and through persuasion, not coercion. We also do this, we Christians, majority white, for the time being, are also never again permitted to separate, and I mentioned this earlier, spiritual and political again. And none of us, frankly, do that anyway. I think this is just kind of a smoke and mirrors game. All of us if we're worth our salt as Christians, have some kind of a public face to what we believe and how we live our faith. We just can't even use this language or this false theology anymore about separating the spiritual and political again. We can't put partisan politics or partisan principles above the kingdom. It means whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you're socialist or libertarian, Republican or Democrat, none of that goes above our devotion to Christ. There was a poll recently taken, done by the Barna Group, I think it was about a year ago, done of evangelical pastors. And they, in in the midst of it, was doing a sample of a lot of things. But this was one striking, arresting comment that came from evangelical pastors about their own congregants. And they said this, our people love America more than God. That is their assessment. But we know America does not save you. In fact, if you give the misplaced devotion to it, it can damn you. But we should also be the best citizens by taking our Christian love to the streets. Now, I know that most of us here, I don't want to assume too much, but most of us here would not be afraid to advocate politically for the lives of unborn children. Right? And I would suggest that we would continue to do that. Maybe that looks like bringing in unwed mothers into our homes and helping them raise them, their children, helping ensure that that child has education and health care and all of those things. Maybe God's blessed you and you're able to provide them. That is a robust pro-life position. But we can never again say that issues of race and justice is something that is private or it is not a Christian concern. And what is it, justice? Justice is just what love looks like in public friend, Michael Edmison, says this. He's an OPC pastor in Michigan. He says, any theology that accommodates injustice through denial, through minimization, or support is more secular than sacred. The great mark of this sinful age has always been to ask, am I my brother's keeper? Christ alone gives us the grace to say with our lives, I am my brother's keeper. Jesus calls us to embody and live out the commandments of the kingdom in the world by loving others with different backgrounds, recognizing the inherent dignity of all people as those who are made in God's image, and helping to create a world that is shaped by hands—our hands—as the church that have been informed by Scripture and this powerful encounter by of God's grace. So that means that there are, for us, again speaking to my. White brothers and sisters here, there are Latino and Asian and black Christians that we have just got to get to know. We have to be more intentional. It's not just about having them for coffee or beer. Sometimes, I'm not saying leave ascension, but we need to go to their church services and listen. So maybe go to an evening worship. Maybe move to their neighborhoods. Make sure that they can move into yours as well and intentionally have your children in schools with them and into our home. Bear witness to the hope that you have in you. What is the hope of the world? Jesus puts it on us by his power. But we are the answer to what is needed. Not because we're something in ourselves, but because we carry his spirit. What what can we bear witness to? We're a sinner, we're forgiven, and we're filled with the spirit. And we are children of God with all kinds of different people. So we need to advocate in whatever way possible, for justice as those who know the Prince of Peace, the Savior of a world of sinners, who carries, according to Isaiah, the government on his shoulders. This is an extension of the hope that we have in us. I want to leave you with this. The novelist Albert Camus, not a Christian, uh, but he studied Augustine and scriptures extensively. He wrote a novel in 1949. Maybe some of you had to read it in college or high school. It's called... The Plague, it, it, and it's about a bu- literal plague, bubonic plague that was brought into the city by rats and infected and it changed a town in North Africa, but really it was also more specifically about the plague of human cruelty, the cruelty of the Nazis during World War II, the cruelty of those who were indifferent to human suffering that was inflicted by the Nazis on others, simply so they could maintain their own personal comfort. Maybe for us, if we were doing a reading of, and I'll let Eric do the readings, but we could maybe think of the plague for us as the cruelty of institutional and social racism. Towards the end of the novel, the main character says this: "A loveless world is a dead world, and always there comes an hour when one is weary of prisons of one's work and of devotion to duty, and all one cares—all one cares for—is a love to face." The warmth and wonder of a loving heart. As Christians, as those who have been loved, we don't believe in a loveless and dead world. We've got it this morning because we do not believe that's fundamentally true about reality. And what is, the, what is an expression of a loveless and dead world? It's just the resignation that says, well, that's just the way things are. People are going to be racist. It's always going to be like that. It's the kind of cynicism that says, well, Jesus will just fix it when he comes back. Yeah, that's true, but that's not why he's left us here in the interim. We have received a love. We have seen a loved face in Jesus and received final forgiveness in the cross. And more than duty, more than the punitive power of law, we can display a kind of public love that says with our voices, that says with our presence, that says with our money, these lives count to God. And all lives matter with the lives of the oppressed, the abused, and the marginalized matter to all of us. That is the hope of the incarnation. That is the hope of the resurrection. And yes, that is the hope of the ascension. And that is the hope of ascension. Let us pray. Let's cause us to stand, Jesus, in faith, in hope, in love. Not because we can conjure. Them. Not because we can like a comment on Facebook or Twitter. But because you have said these issues matter because people matter. Because they're made in your image. Help us to be faithful, even with wobbly knees, cracking voices. To give an account of hope that is within us. And to do so for the least of those in our country. In our neighborhoods, maybe even in our families. Give us power by the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.